Good morning. It's wonderful to be here this morning and to look out and see some familiar faces. It's an honor to open God's Word together. Um, as the children were coming forward and heading out to their lesson, um, it reminded me when my daughter, who's now 10, was about her uh, about the age of those kids, and we were at the beach. And uh, we were sitting in a chair, and I was looking in this direction, and she was kind of playing behind me, and she had her Cheerios with her. And she had one Cheerio in her hand, and she put it on the ground, and then a seagull came in, and, uh, you know, and she was so entertained with that one seagull. And I just kind of turned back around with satisfaction. Look, look, look how generous she is. And then only just a couple of seconds later, I turn around, and there is a swarm of seagulls just completely surrounding her in just a matter of moments. And I think it just reminds me that generosity can oftentimes lead to misuse, to abuse. It isn't just true with children. It isn't just true in our culture. It's even true in the spiritual realm. The freeness of the gospel that Paul is talking about in Romans 5, the chapter just previous to our passage this morning, is so extravagant that Paul anticipates the amazing generosity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ might lead us to misuse that grace. So with that, can we look at Romans chapter 6 this morning, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died... He died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, um, we come into an amazing mystery in your scriptures. And Lord, I am not smart enough to be able to explain this and do justice to your word apart from your Holy Spirit. I am a sinful and a weak man. And my friends here do not need to hear from me. They need to hear from the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. Use me as a mouthpiece to herald the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in your name. Amen. I wonder how many of you remember in June of 2002 the story of Elizabeth Smart. Y'all remember her story? 
was all over the headlines. All the morning talk shows were all talking about this 14-year-old girl who was abducted out of thin air from her home and held captive for a number of months only 18 miles away from her home. And it was fascinating to see that a lot of times Elizabeth would be out in public with her captors. You would think that she would have an opportunity to run away to tell somebody, but still she was right there by her captors all along. Psychologists interviewed her after the fact. She had been safe and sound. She had been set free from her captors. And they said that early on she still longed to return to the very ones that were enslaving her. Now, there's a lot of things that we can say about that story, but one thing that really stands out to me is this. There was a certain story that Elizabeth Smart was believing about reality and her life and her captors that was driving all of her behavior. You're free. You don't have to live enslaved anymore. But she kept wanting to go back. Story drives behavior. This is true in the Elizabeth Smart story. You know, it's also true in the business world. You know, companies spend millions of dollars writing a story brand for their company. Not just ideas and vision and values, but here's the story of our company. Why? Because they, executives understand when, you are, when your heart is hooked into a story, it drives your behavior. As followers of Christ, we know it goes all the way back to the beginning. God has created us in his image and has called us to live into a story, his story. And we've wonderfully sung of that story this morning. We've sung of God's grace and his love and his care. Chip has prayed about these wonderful things. And we know what the story is. But I wonder, friends, if we can be honest this morning and say... We forget that story. We live out of another story that we are believing about ourselves as Christians. We are believing stories about who we think God is that are not based upon his promises. And so Paul is anticipating that in Romans 6. He wants us to understand here's the experience of the Christian life. What, what, what stories you are believing this morning, we need to hear from Romans 6 because we need to have our perspectives and our hearts and our imaginations captivated not with our own feelings and our own views of ourselves, but what God says in his word about us because story drives behavior. With that, I want us to look and consider three things about this amazing story of the gospel. This announcement, this proclamation that you have been set free, that you are forgiven, that you are righteous in Christ, that you are adopted into God's family. It's an announcement. It's not advice. The gospel is an announcement. This is true of you. And I wonder if we can look at that from three different sides. First, I want us to consider the scandalous nature of the gospel. The scandalous nature of the gospel. What makes the gospel scandalous, Justin? Well, what makes it scandalous is that Jesus does everything. What you're telling me, Justin, is I am a sinner, 
and there's nothing I could ever do to earn God's favor, even though I've shipwrecked my life and maybe shipwrecked my marriage and I'm angry at my kids and I have so much shame and regret from the past, what you're telling me is that Jesus has paid for all of that and I have a bright future all because Christ was raised from the dead. You're telling me that it doesn't cost me a dime and it costs Jesus everything. That's scandalous. That's scandalous. That's over the top. That's too good to be true. And Paul anticipates that we might be thinking to ourselves, well, since that's so scandalous, that's so incredible, that's so much, how do we respond? I think it's important for us to pause for just one moment. I know that the gospel so clearly, faithfully preached from this pulpit by my friend Chip year after year. But if you're at all like me, I can hear it week after week, morning after morning, and walk out of there like I didn't hear anything. Can we just pause and let the scandalous nature of the gospel hit us to such a degree that we might even be flirting? It's so free, we might even be flirting to misuse the gospel. Paul had to say in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. May it never be. It's an impossibility. But the very fact that Paul has to say that, could it be that people might have been flirting with abusing and misusing God's grace? I think so. I want you to think about this for a second. Remember the the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18, one of my favorite parables? You got the Pharisee, the religious leader guy, going into temple with the tax collector, the scoundrel, the guy that gouged his own people, everyone. This, this guy was brutal. Both of those guys, the two most unlikely people, go to church together, go to temple, and they pray. The Pharisee's over there praying about himself. But the tax collector beats his breast, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. And then Jesus says, and that man went home justified. Whoa, 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 Jesus. You're saying that's it? Don't you know the kind of life that guy lived? He ripped off thousands of people. He stole money. He, he rejected his own people. The gospel can't be that scandalous. It can't be that true, that free. What about us? Can we be reminded of the amazing freedom and the scandal of the gospel? It's an amazing story. The gospel really is that free to us, even though it costs Jesus everything. The gospel's scandalous. We've got to remember that. But there's more. That's a part of the story. We also have to see that the the gospel is organic. The gospel is scandalous, and the gospel is organic. No, I'm not making any commentary about uh, giving your animals antibiotics or whether you're any kind of organic farming. I'm talking about organic nature of the gospel, that we are connected to life, derived from living matter. Let me explain it this way. Look at, look at verse 5 real quick. Chapter 6, verse 5. Paul says a very curious phrase. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul in this passage is talking about a crucial biblical term called union with Christ. One old theologian named John Murray, who's very, very important, but I doubt many of us have heard of him before, he says something 
like immensely powerful. He says, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. This theologian says that what Paul is saying in Romans 6 is central to everything else in salvation. Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. So what is it? If it's that important, what is he getting at? We read earlier in chapter 5 where Paul talks about that all of humanity is united to Adam. All of us showed up in life, we could say, united to Adam. None of us showed up independent. None of us showed up autonomous. We all were born into Adam. That means we get credit, if I could speak that way, for all that Adam did. Adam acted representatively on all of our behalf, and now we get credit, unfortunately, for the failures of Adam. But for those of us who are in Christ, we are united to Jesus, and we get credit for all that Jesus has done. And he gets credit for all of our failures. That's the beauty of union with Christ. Union with Christ is this large, beautiful umbrella term that we are united in this link and this bond that will never be broken between Jesus and his people. And because that link and that bond is so strong and nothing will break it, even my bad days, even when I feel bad about myself, even when I'm self-loathing, even when I'm being self-righteous and I'm boasting in my flesh, nothing will will break that bond, ever. And because that bond is so strong, we receive the benefits of justification and adoption and sanctification and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, all because of that bond in union with Christ. You know, there's other places in the Scripture that help us understand this. You know, in John 15, when Jesus talks about the vine and the branch, that's another symbol, another image of union with Christ, that we receive all of the life from the vine as we are connected to the branch, so we're called to abide in Jesus. Think about the, uh, another example of that would be in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the head and the body, that we are linked with one another and we are dependent on the head. Think about in Ephesians 5, Christ is the groom and his, his church is the bride, linked together as one flesh. We are disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, Absolutely. But even more fundamental to that, we are united to Jesus Christ. Nothing will ever break that bond. Nothing. Jesus died in our place. Jesus received the credit for our sin and punishment that should have come to us, and he took it upon himself. We are united in his death. Look at verse 9 for yourself. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This morning, friends, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, if you are a Christian, let this hit you. When Jesus was hanging on that cross 2,000 years ago on a garbage heap outside of the city, And he died. We died with him 2,000 years ago. The power and the slavery of sin that all of us were born into because of Adam died with him. There's no more condemnation. There's no more enslavement to that master of sin. We died with him. 
just think about that one little part of the gospel truth, that one part of the story. If we just held on to that, how differently might that change our lives even today? But not only 2,000 years ago when Jesus died, we died with him. See if you can wrap your minds around this. When Jesus came out of that tomb, vindicated, he conquered death. No one could hold him down. Jesus came forward. We came forward with him. We are united in his death. We are united in his resurrection, even now as we groan and long and await the resurrection of our physical bodies. How can Paul even write in Ephesians that our salvation, that union is so strong that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies now? I cannot wrap my mind around that. I've studied the scriptures. That is a mystery. But that is the organic bond of the gospel. The gospel is not only scandalous. It's not only organic, but there's more. The gospel is embodied. The gospel is embodied. Let's get down to brass tacks for just a second. You might be thinking to yourself, Justin, I I hear you. I I really do. I've heard Chip say the same things from the pulpit week after week. But I sin all the time. I mean, I I sin this morning on the way to church. Uh, Even my tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Justin, how is it actually beneficial to know that the old me really did die with Jesus 2,000 years ago? And to know that right now I am a new creation in Christ. I'm a forgiven new me right now sitting in that pulpit. What difference does that really make if I just keep acting up? That's a question I asked myself as I was preparing this sermon. Paul answers that in verse 11. Paul says this as he's is describing the beauties of the scandalous and organic connection of the gospel. He knows that we have to live it out in our bodies. So he says this. So, transition. You also, Christians, brothers and sisters, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. It's not enough for you to check the blank and be like, that's good theology. I like that. That's biblical. Check. We as followers of Jesus must slow down and chew on and consider and mull over and ask ourselves, what story about the gospel and myself and my family and my city am I really considering? All of us are considering a story. Are we slowing down enough to ask ourselves, what story is that? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. That means you can't just believe in a theological truth and move on. We have to slow down and say, if that's really true, how does that change the way that I feel about myself? How does that speak into my insecurity? Maybe my feelings and my view of myself are not the final word anymore. Maybe what God is saying is if that bond is so strong, it can even shoulder my ups and my downs, then maybe I can really be honest with God and with other people about what's really going on in my heart. Consider. How are you considering yourself this morning? What is the story that you are telling about you? 
What are you telling yourself? And I, I will be honest with you, I was really, really slow on this. One of the most powerful quotes that I ever heard from a preacher, and I just almost had to pull my car over. I was listening to it on a podcast. It was so powerful. He said this, As a Christian, are you a forgiven old you? Or are you a forgiven new you? How we answer that question has massive implications. How, Justin? How is that possible? Let's say that some of you in this room really, really have been battling anger. You're a Christian. You believe what I'm saying. You believe in the Bible. But you're like, Justin, I just keep struggling with anger so much. I get angry at my kids. I get angry at my coworkers. I get angry at the guy cutting me off in traffic. That terrible construction at 16 and 75. Oh my goodness. And you tell yourself, well, that's me. That's just Justin. I'm just an angry man. Praise Jesus that he's forgiven me, that I'm justified. Okay, you are justified and you're fully forgiven. But if this is true, you are, that is, you are not defined by being an angry man anymore. You're not defined by being an angry woman anymore. Because that angry man died with Jesus 2,000 years ago. And we are a new creation in Christ. Let's say that some of us in this room, some of you might struggle with different types of sexual temptation. There's nothing more shame-filled than the temptations that we struggle with in that area. And every single one of us in this room struggles with it. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's just my struggle. That's just my temptation. You know what? Praise Jesus that I'm forgiven and that I'm justified. I can't wait to see him in glory. You are a forgiven new you. That sexual temptation does not define you. That is not your identity. It died with Jesus 2,000 years ago, and you have already been raised with him. You could plug in application after application. Worry, perfectionism, self-righteousness. Justin, my heart, if you knew how I thought about people walking down the street, you, you wouldn't want to talk to me, I can assure you. I'm so self-righteous. I feel terrible about it. I love Jesus, but I don't know why I, th I think I'm better than other people. I tend not to be compassionate toward people and their struggles. But it's been such a part of my story, I don't know how to let go of it. We, can we tell ourselves this morning, that self-righteous man or woman died with Jesus 2,000 years ago. You are not defined by that anymore. Do you see how this considering takes a lot of effort and intentionality and looking deep down into our hearts? And yet, that is the kind of embodied gospel that Paul is calling us. Consider yourself. Try it on for size. That you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. There's a, um, I'm just going to close with this one quote that I think will really wrap this up and really, it really challenged me. In an old Spurgeon sermon from a long time ago, he, he talked about one of the early church fathers in the 300s or 400s. And by the way, a church father just means a Christian in the early church. And um, he talked about this church father. He didn't, he didn't name him, but he said this church father had a very, very wild background before he knew Jesus. Uh, let's say he probably would have frequented a number of fraternity parties back in the day. And um, just really wild. And then Jesus got a hold of him and changed him. 
And this, and Spurgeon talks about this church father uh, walking through that old city where he used to live, and he used to live that lifestyle. And someone that he knew from his past, a woman, was trying to get his attention. And she kept calling to him, and he just kept walking. And she kept calling to him and saying, It's me! It's me! And he just ignored her and kept going. Finally, she ran around to see him face to face and said, It's me! And he says, Yes, but it is not me. Friends, that story from that early church father is every single one of our stories if you were in Christ. You have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. We are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies, all because of Jesus. Can we put that story into our hearts and consider that truth even this morning? Will you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for this word that is true and powerful. Paul knew this better than anybody as he was killing people because he was so convinced of his self-righteous mission. He felt shame and guilt over his past, and yet he knew that he was a new creation in Christ called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Lord, whatever baggage we are bringing in this morning, whatever stories we are believing about ourselves that are false— I pray that you might help us to see that we are united to Jesus Christ in in his death and his resurrection. And that is our identity and that we will be brought home to glory one day when he returns. In Jesus' name, amen.